Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, everyone. It's Pacific, and welcome to the finale of Out of Place Season 2. Just a few quick notes. First, if you want to see more Out of Place and you want to see more content from the incredible Ben Counter, make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to get our show into the ears of new listeners and help us rise through the ranks. Second, currently Ben and I are working on a new, uh, very exciting SCP miniseries, which is coming out this uh, December. And if you're excited about that and about... Ben writing a terrifying horror monster story, uh, check out SCP Archives. We'll have more news on that later this month, but stay tuned. And last but certainly not least, uh, thank you everyone who's joined us and tweeted at us and uh, listened to the show. We're incredibly blown away by all the support we've gotten this season, and we will be doing... Uh, something else soon. If not a season three, an all new show, or maybe more. Uh, we don't know yet, but we're working on it and we'll let you know what we end up making next as soon as we can. So, without further ado, this week's episode. Looking back, it started a long time before the first nuclear test, which opened the dimensional breach. It was buried deep inside us, a yearning, an unfulfilled hole in all of us, and we spend all our lives trying to fill it. We do extraordinary things to feed that yearning, even though it never works and it never has for anyone in history. We know this, but we still try. That's why the project has done such extraordinary things. It sends people to other realities. It plays with space and time. It flips through different universes as if there were pages in a book. 
Its resources are immense and its structure is so arcane no one person knows the full extent of it. My tiny corner of it, in an office block on a New Mexico industrial estate, is like being on a single planet in a universe of infinite galaxies. I see pieces of it from a distance, but I can't imagine the whole of it at once. I told that to Rico over a game of table football at lunch. He said, I think, too much. I can't argue with that. Then he told me about his brother, who spent three years in Nevada prospecting for crashed UFO parts, which took my mind off things for a bit. Given what I know about the various versions of Earth out there, his brother doesn't seem too crazy. It's bittersweet talking with Rico, of course, and I wonder if he knows it, but the office would be a much duller place without him. He certainly takes my mind off things. He seems very normal, which is a paradox, since his relatives seem in a competition to see who can be arrested for the most ridiculous reasons. He asked me if I knew what the project is up to. He's in logistics, so he knows how much people and equipment they're moving around. The site near the old Trinity test site is being expanded. New barracks, more vehicles, a lot more power. I said I thought they were doing something with time travel, which is just one of the likely possibilities. And he agreed. Both of us standing by the football table, drinking Dr. Pepper and talking absolutely seriously about time travel. It made me realise just how ridiculous the project really is. We have to rationalise the most insane things around us or we will go insane too. The same way Rico can talk with a straight face about his aunt who once streaked in front of the Pope, I suppose. I had a lot to take my mind off. The data from the last mission came in and this one was different. I'm used to the field team visiting some pretty left-field versions of our world, but this one was the most extreme yet. The orbital probe sent back images of a world wreathed in orange-brown cloud like a blinded eye, with only the poles and a few streaks of ocean visible. Those oceans were red. Blood red. With islands of scab dim beneath a crimson haze. A stretch of coastline became visible, a city half-drowned in red, with raised highways connecting the upper floors of skyscrapers. The broadcasts from this version of Earth were fragments of old conversations and TV shows, shreds of data bursts and misaligned GPS signals. Here and there were clear passages among the noise, and they were usually screaming. The International Space Station was broken and abandoned, clinging to orbit with its habitat modules ripped open. Where the ice caps were visible, the probe could just make out ramshackle settlements on the coasts, Feeble clusters of tents and shacks clinging to the ice. They looked abandoned and dead. Their one-time inhabitants had chosen almost certain death by exposure at the extreme ends of the Earth over whatever was happening outside the Arctic and Antarctic circles. In those scattered pixels against the snow was written a fear worse than freezing to death. Extant technical analysts could not generate any scenarios that could realistically leave the planet in such a state, so they sent the field team to find out what happened. The destination was the default of New York City, aiming to land just west of the Hudson. They lacked accurate GPS data, but were able to estimate their arrival location as about two kilometres northeast of their target. At least they were at ground level. As a precaution, the team wore NBC gear and carried their air supplies with them. The sky was a dark red, with the sun barely visible. Plant life had died out and the housing was in disarray. Windows were smashed and many were destroyed by fire. 
The same went for the vehicles in driveways and garages or abandoned on the street. The scene resembled the sites of a massive riot. From the surviving street signs and advertising, Private Sandwich estimated they were in the Palisades Park region of New Jersey, known as Koreatown. Across the Hudson River, the team could see a skyscraper on the Manhattan side with its upper floors torn open as if by enormous claws, with deep vertical gashes a dozen floors long. Another building leaned over as if it had been shouldered aside and spilled its top third into the streets below. The river itself was a black-brown mass of sluggish, viscous liquid. Chunks of debris churned in its flow. The banks were coated in coagulated brown matter like the walls of a furred-up artery. There were bodies in the river. They formed dams at the choke points or were embedded in the clotted banks. Hundreds more hung from the George Washington Bridge, strung up from the suspension cables. The river ferry was embedded in the roadway of the bridge as if picked up from the river and hurled with enormous force. The team did not advance beyond their immediate surroundings for some time. Like the analysts back at their home timeline, they could not come to any reasonable conclusion about what had happened. For them to be witnessing such death and destruction at an essentially random point on Earth meant it was highly likely similar scenes would be found all over the planet. Downriver, towards Upper Bay, something huge moved in the crimson haze. Its roars carried on the wind. It was vast. Too huge to properly understand, wallowing in the congealing foulness. The footage is too indistinct to make out individual features. Sergeant Brand continued on the mission to investigate the Manhattan side of the river. He ordered the team to expect hostile contact. They crossed the George Washington Bridge and counted dozens of bodies strung up, mostly in civilian clothing and in varying states of decay. The ground was loose underfoot when they reached the Manhattan side and they realized they were walking through a drift of tiny bone-white granules. They were teeth. Human teeth. They formed an ankle-deep layer the width of West 178th Street. The tarmac and paving slabs of Little Dominican Republic were sagging and malformed as if melted, and bodies were half-sunk into them with hands reaching out for something to grab onto. Buildings had melted too, the brick frozen halfway through sloughing off skeletons of steel beams and reinforced concrete. At the corner of 174th and Broadway, a pyramid had been built, three stories high, completely blocking the intersection. As they got closer, the team saw it was built out of skulls. Some had tumbled out of place, revealing the structure was skulls all the way through. The team skirted well around the structure as they headed south. They saw bodies spilling out of the windows of a six-story building, the limbs and torsos melded together. A severed arm the size of a city bus lay across Amsterdam Avenue. Walls were painted with hundreds of faces, not painted, but burned into the concrete and glass. The recordings indicate the team were almost completely silenced as they made their way through Manhattan. Warren Officer Poulter's photographs provide the record of what they came across. The wildlife seemed unaffected, as scavenging birds were in evidence where the fresher bodies were present, and the team spotted packs of feral dogs from a distance. They began to see signs of a significant emergency services operation among the bizarre destruction and carnage. 
reams of yellow tape cutting off certain streets. Ambulances and police cars, along with specialist vehicles, are used by the Centre for Disease Control. Some older bodies wore protective gear not dissimilar to the team's own. Sergeant Brand had the team follow these signs towards a location in the Upper West Side, near the American Museum of Natural History. Streets here were sealed off with portable barricades and there were signs of small arms fire. Many of the dead were in riot gear. One of the vehicles abandoned in the street was a mobile laboratory shielded by a tent of transparent plastic now torn and tattered. Oxygen tanks and crates of unused body bags were among the debris choking the street. An explosion had blasted the surrounding buildings, shattering all the windows and ripping the frontages off the stores at ground level. A truck lay on its side, its metal sides blown open. Sergeant Brandt had seen the results of many IEDs and car bombs during his military service and believed the explosion had originated inside the truck. The bomb site was one of the most mundane things in the city. A very prosaic form of destruction and death, and as such it stood out against the signs of insanity around it. The truck was marked Excelsior Deliveries. The remains of its contents were spread across the area. It had been carrying a load of metal boxes, like footlockers, each of which contained several steel and glass containers the size of a finger. Both the lockers and the smaller containers were etched with a biohazard symbol. This caused great dismay among the team, but Brandt told Poulter and Sandwich their protective gear should keep them safe, and in any case, the possibility of contamination did not change their mission. Poulter pointed out that even given the site of the explosion was a crime scene, it would not remain in place for long. It would be cleared away quickly, especially if there was a potential biological hazard which had to be cleaned up. The wreckage should have been taken away rapidly once the initial investigations had been completed. But it had all remained in place, meaning whatever madness had come upon the world occurred very soon after the explosion. Brandt ordered the team to search the area thoroughly. Private Sandwich protested the place was a biological hot zone, but Brandt retorted that if they were going to become infected by anything, then it had already claimed them, and their duty was to acquire intelligence that would prevent this from happening to their own timeline. The team examined the remains of the truck and the closest first responder vehicles while Poulter took drone photography of the area around the epicentre. In one of the police vans, someone had written a message in marker pen on the inside of the passenger compartment. It read... 15th November. Quarantined in place. No one's sick, but the CDC won't let us go. Not telling us cops anything. Can hear screaming from the apartments nearby. Saw people with wings. Shadows outside. Killing people. The last lines were in an increasingly panicked scrawl. Poulter's drone spotted a heap of broken bodies on the street which appeared to have jumped from the upper floors of an adjacent apartment building. At the edge of its range, it spotted a fissure in the ground opening up the tunnels and subway passages beneath. The road surface around it was gouged with deep claw marks. The team paid particular attention to the CDC mobile lab. Evidence remained of an attempt to weld the doors shut from the inside, but this work had not been completed and the team were able to access it. Warrant Officer Poulter recovered hard drives from two computers inside. Also recovered was a sheaf of folded papers that had previously been sealed in a plastic case. The broken case was on a desk near the papers and was covered in symbols and warnings indicating the contents were secret and sensitive. The papers were full of scientific information about a pathogen, described as BSL Level 4+. 
Being unable to understand the science involved, but aware of the information's importance given its context, the team took the papers with them. The team continued southwards through Manhattan. They noted many more severely damaged buildings and evidence of anomalous events. They included a widely scattered profusion of severed limbs without associated heads or torsos. Entrances to the subway showed the underground portions to be flooded with the same viscous red-brown mass as the Hudson. One corpse was grotesquely elongated, its position suggesting it was dragging itself along by its hands as its legs and abdomen stretched behind it. The one damaged skyscraper had a gash running from its roof, revealing desiccated organs inside, and a length of intestine hanging down to street level, as wide as a road tunnel. Roads were blistered up like burned skin. Bodies were everywhere, posed or hanging or lying abandoned where they died. Finally, the team reached Lower Manhattan and came within sight of the Upper Bay. The bay was a deep, glistening red. Near the shore it was coagulated and scabbed over, but the open ocean was unmistakably liquid blood. Coulter's drone footage indicated that in place of the Atlantic Ocean was an expanse of blood that reached the horizon. Under the surface, something wallowed. The team saw only an indication of a huge curved back and slithering boneless masses sliding past, fins of a gill-like structure breaking the surface, a milky-coloured eye with an asymmetrical black pupil of the size of a hot air balloon. Brandt led the team at a rapid pace back through Manhattan towards the George Washington Bridge and across to the Jersey side. Their time was limited by their hazard suits, oxygen supplies, and Brandt ensured they had enough time to reach the capsule before the air ran low. They retraced their steps on the return hike to reduce the chance of running into unexpected contacts, and again, they saw no living people. They heard the sound of the thing moving in the bay again, and on the recording it sounds something like a whale and something like the roar of a large land animal, like a bear, mixed with the rumble of the ruined city settling and collapsing. The team reached the capsule and were able to return to their base timeline without incident. They arrived within 30 minutes and 800 metres of their expected arrival. Normal quarantine procedures were observed but quickly strengthened given the circumstances they'd encountered. The briefing and assessment period was also lengthened given the disturbed mental state evident among the team on their return. The scientific evidence brought back from the CDC mobile lab was examined by extant technical analysts. Specialist expertise was brought in from other project departments to assist. The documentation described a pathogen that was neither a bacteria or a virus, or any other biological agent known in this timeline. Its creation was not completely described, but it was clearly an engineered agent created in a laboratory from scratch. Its effects were neurological. Its purpose was to enable the regeneration of damaged brain tissue by causing the matter it infected to be rearranged. It was originally created to aid in the treatment of brain injuries or conditions that caused the brain to degenerate. The biological agent had unintended effects. In most of those it had been tested on, the effects were encouraging but below expectations. In about 20%, Mental capabilities were triggered beyond normal human experience. Telekinesis, though undirected and uncontrolled. The creation and animation of matter through projected thought. These effects were most evident when the subject was asleep. 
The information finally noted that samples of the pathogen had been stolen from a secure laboratory, and that those informed of its existence should assume a plan to use it as a weapon. Given the scene of the explosion the team found, and the evidence it was to spread a biohazard around the centre of Manhattan, that plan came to fruition. When the pathogen was released, it spread. It infected. Far too quickly for the emergency services to stop. A portion of those infected developed, for want of a better term, psychic powers. A portion of those were asleep. And a portion of those had nightmares. It was nightmares that destroyed the city. The shadows the policemen saw killing people. Or whatever had torn the claw marks into those skyscrapers. Nightmares given shape in the real world by a disease that gave the sufferer psychic powers they couldn't control. And as the horror unfolded, it gave rise to more nightmares, perhaps atrocities born from the waking trauma of those witnessing it all happen. It spread. It grew. Someone dreamed of the ground swallowing them up, and outside it really did. They dreamed of a huge, formless abomination, and it awoke. They dreamed of the ocean turning to blood, and it happened. Maybe the terrorist attack that first released it was supposed to have those consequences. Maybe they went far beyond whatever the bombers intended. Either way, whoever was responsible was caught in the middle, just like everybody else. It was impossible to live through that horror. Perhaps it was a dream that raised a pyramid of skulls, or perhaps it was people, driven mad, trying to appease the forces tearing their world apart. But they died too, devoured by monsters or unmade by abstract fears made real. With no way to stop it and no possibility of organising a response amid the madness, nightmares swallowed the world. busy woman, as I'm sure you can appreciate. What can I do for you? Director Beckman, thank you for seeing me. I'm, uh, I'm about to submit my recommendations for the last extant mission. Ah, yes. That must be a challenging one. But I have faith in you. It was. But there's more to it than that. There were sections of the data redacted. We've gone through this before, Andrew. I know, but we weren't done. Do I need to repeat myself? The project must arm itself against its enemies. Alternative versions of the project will try to take what we have achieved. Extant ran into one of them. I doubt you have forgotten already. I, I understand that, and it made sense then. I, I know the project took position of the evolved human the field team killed at the stadium, and samples of the virus from London. The neural chip from Dar es Salaam as well. Those make sense. They're either useful or they can be weaponized against an aggressor. Then you understand how negligent we would be if we just ignored the issue of defense. But that's the thing. I think the field team retrieved a sample of the virus or bacterium or fungus or whatever it was from the last mission. Maybe a sealed container that survived the explosion. And you can't use that for defense. It would kill any timeline it was released in. 
If you released it against an invader, it would wipe out whatever they were invading, too. It only does one thing. It destroys worlds. That's quite the conjecture, Andrew. And I don't think it's a coincidence the nightmare virus was released at the exact same place as the field team's default location. Brandt practically led them right to the bomb site. I think Extant has been poised to collect it for a long time. Maybe since it was created. The project is gearing up for something big. Everyone knows it. Suddenly, you pull the trigger on grabbing a live sample of the most dangerous thing we've ever seen. Those versions of the project you mentioned, the ones who would steal the answers from another version, I think we are one of them. I think we're about to do it. I see. So you're having a moral crisis. It was always a possibility with you. There's a sort of childishness to you. A belief in right and wrong, as if they were universal constants. The idea that things should be fair... Human Resources saw it right away and said it might be a problem. But I told them I would deal with it, if it became an issue. Who are we going to attack, Director Beckman? They're not a blameless bunch of innocents, Andrew, if that's your problem. So you have a target? Of course. We've had thousands of them. There's a whole department dedicated to boiling them down to a single choice. What are you going to take from them? Information, mostly. The solutions to a few questions about time travel. Some big data on historical causality we're missing. The stable nuclear fusion we've been looking for. The final pieces we need. And what if they have their own version of Caroline Beckman in charge? They do. She'll die. And that doesn't bother you? Not particularly. It's a matter of perspective. I can step back from the rights and wrongs of it all and focus on the end goal. We're talking about the result of a perfect timeline. Complete happiness. Utopia. If the price is being the bad guy, or at least not worrying about being the good guy, then we'll pay it. I don't think there is anything more important than being the good guy. We have run simulations for every configuration of the project. Every variable. Do you know how many of them concluded that aggression against another version of the project was the optimal strategy? How many of them decided to adopt it as their endgame? One hundred percent. Every one of them. There are no good guys. Not with a goal like this. It's a war. We take what we can and stop the ones trying to take from us. And if one of your employees doesn't want to go to war. We appeal to his better instincts. Director, I understand there's a certain moral flexibility in what the project does, but there's a line I won't go past, and my line comes a long way before genocide. I'm sad to hear you think of it that way, Andrew. I really am. We're doing nothing more than destroying an enemy before they destroy us first. And taking what we need while we're at it. And I urge you to keep the end goal in mind. Living in our perfect world will be quite the remedy for a guilty conscience. I'll take my chances with this imperfect world. So I suppose what I'm really here to ask you is... Are you going to let me leave? Of course. We're not monsters. I can't offer you a reference, of course. 
And we have become very adept at hunting down where information about the project is leaking from. My forgiving nature does not extend to people who try to blow the whistle on us. So keep my mouth shut. So use your head. Security will be waiting at your dormitory. You'll have 15 minutes to pack your things. I understand that will be more than enough time. As you'll no longer be on the payroll, I can't sign off on transport expenses. But there's a truck stop about three hours walk east along the main road. I suggest you bring some bottled water. Right. So that's it. That's it. I suppose you're not so different from the other Andrew I met. You both proved to be lacking the necessary conviction when it really counts. I've had a glimpse of the plans and... Well, I won't torment you with the details, but you're definitely missing out. Still, can't be helped. Some people just aren't cut out for Utopia. Then I'll be going. I'll miss you, Andrew. You were useful. Goodbye. And we'll be watching. Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Our sound design and music was done by Dana Creesman. Our editor was Daisy McNamara. And our theme music was done by Tom Rory Parsons. I'm your producer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew was Ben Counter. Carolyn was Aaron Evans-Walker. And this is a Midnight Disease production. For more information, visit midnightdisease.net. Thank you.